This episode is brought to you in collaboration with the 2020 Real Estate Forum, brought to you virtually by Informa Markets. Join the industry on the 2nd and 3rd December by registering at realestateforums.com after you listen to this episode to join Aaron and myself at the forum this year. Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me, of course, is Adam Pawatic. I'd like to thank Informa for the introduction to our guest today. I'd like to remind our listeners that at the end of this, this interview, Adam and I will be doing the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show, where we kind of digest the discussion. Our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Brad Cutsey, the president of Interrent REITs. Brad, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to uh, talking a little more about Interrent. And hopefully some interesting stories. So let's go backwards first, Brad. How did you get into real estate? How did you get end up as the president of one of the major REITs in Canada? Yeah, it was by accident. It wasn't by design, actually. I got uh, involved in the capital markets when I started out my career after university. I wanted to be an equities analyst, and I ended up at TD Securities. They were uh, kind enough to take me on as a project. I was actually covering oil and gas sector as an associate. And from there, there was a merger when uh, TD Securities bought Newcrest Capital. And at the time, after the merger, they um, did a restructuring and they kept Newcrest's oil and gas team, but let go TD's oil and gas team. However, they wanted to keep me on board and they asked me if I would like to try covering the uh, real estate sector for Sam Damiani, who came over from Newcrest over to TD. So at the time, I said, why not? And I haven't looked back ever since. It was pretty interesting in the sense that you went from asset class that you couldn't see and it was below the ground. So real estate really did excite me in the sense that it was tangible that you could see above ground. So right off the bat, as a young analyst, it was a lot easier to get your head around the technicals and evaluation in the sense that you knew what you were getting with real estate. I've always uh, been uh, economics enthusiast, and I, I really find that real estate's always lend itself really well to that discipline. And it was an area that just kind of from there on in just excited me. I didn't really think much about industry specific expertise, but once I kind of went into the capital markets and got exposed to oil and gas, you realize how little you did know and the importance of being surrounded by the leaders within the industry. And real estate in Toronto has certainly fit the bill on that front. So it was a lot easier to be plugged in because of the different services, such as the brokerage community, the different uh, management teams. Most of them were uh, head office here in Toronto. And then you have different lenders and people like First National, right, to kind of help you get up to speed with the industry. So I think it was um, a blessing. At the time, it was pretty stressful when you're going through a merger as a young professional, kind of gives you questions where you're going to end up and how will it impact you. And I think at the time, I probably felt, oh, wow, spent three years covering oil and gas with my colleagues, hated to see them go. And it would cause a little bit of noise. But Looking back, I mean, it was uh, well-served and uh, I couldn't be happier. 
I mean, you didn't have podcasts back then to get the exposure to the industry leaders. Like, what was the process then to get to well, pick their brains? No, it, understand it, it, what's was going funny, on? it was funny because as an associate, your your main goal was you wanted to become the guy, right? You wanted to sit in the seat in this. They're normally small teams. They're normally teams of either two, maybe three or four on an equity team in a specific sector. So you kind of always wanted to be associate, go to and make analysts. I was actually given the opportunity at the time with Spot, which is no longer known as Spot, but to join their team as an actual analyst. It would have been a promotion. But to your point, Aaron, you didn't have the wonderful technology we have today and being able to do these Zooms or listen to podcasts to get you up to speed. It would. I knew what I didn't know. And I wasn't living in Calgary. I wasn't in the patch. I didn't have access to different industry experts to get me to a level of comfort that I would have needed to be able to make recommendations with confidence. And I really saw the fact that if I could walk out and pick up a phone and walk out my office and go down the street and meet somebody for a coffee, I really saw the value in that and the value in, in being able to kind of continuously learn. And back in the old days, I really was picking up the phone and saying, hey, let's go meet for a coffee. Do you have 30 minutes? And just well, so. Brad, before we move on to your entrance into Interent, I want to just ask one more question about that particular time of your career. Are the stories true that it's a grind? I have one particular friend I know that spent time in that particular role as an associate trying to become an analyst and the stories he had of being forced to take the red eye back from Vancouver and his boss saying, you don't have time to go and shower and change. You need to be at your desk by 6 a.m. when the plane lands. Like just, And then he worked 14 hours straight. You know, like, is that true? Is it work that way? Is it a sweatshop kind of vibe? I'm going to I'm gonna throw out a couple scenarios and, and I'm going to uh, upset some of my uh, old colleagues and I'm going to make some of them happy and proud. After being an equities analyst, I moved in and I headed up the investment banking group for real estate for Ned Goodman over at Dundee. And while they're both capital markets, they're two opposite ends of the spectrum as far as kind of your daily responsibilities. I would say the associate rule, not necessarily the analyst rule, but the associate equity research rule is probably the toughest on the street. It is a grind. You learning curve is extremely steep. The hours are very long. And then you've got to take it a step further. You've got to act and think like your analyst. So not only do you have to be present for long hours, not only is there a lot of knowledge that you have to try to gather and analyze, then at the end of the day, you've got to think like your analyst. And even though you might agree or disagree, you've got to be able to articulate a certain view if the analyst is not present to do that. And you have to write as if you're writing for the analyst, almost like a ghostwriter. So a lot of different skill sets involved, a lot of grind. And I, till this day, I have tremendous amount of respect for those associates. I really do. And that's why you're going out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, you go to banking, not that banking is easy. It's got different challenges in its own right. And, and, you want to be able to present ideas, original ideas, and, and make your clients money on the, on the other side. But it was a little bit of a different type of a, a grind in the sense that once you form relationships, you were in. I think being in equity research helped me form those relationships a little easier because I think management groups didn't think I was just always selling. When I was calling them, there was already in a, some kind of relationship of report established previously. And research, 
actually affects your cost of capital most times where on the banking side it's, it's about idea generation a lot of the times so when management is really busy it's a lot harder maybe to have all the time uh, you'd like for your banking community where on the research side typically that phone call got answered i was lucky because i already had the rapport established through my uh, research days so let's keep on on the timeline so you're now you know established in the in the industry you've you know, worked these crazy hours, gone into to work on showered, according to Aaron. What was next for you on, on the road to where you are today? Yeah, it's kind of funny. And I, I'll, I'll give this advice. I've got three young boys. I'll give this uh, advice to my sons and, and my father gave it to me. Make sure whatever you do in life, you're passionate about it. Success will follow. And I've been really, really, really fortunate in the sense that I've never been in a position in my career where I was unhappy. And I kind of look at it, I take that for granted. Sometimes I think a lot of people are like that. And, and the more you talk to people, you realize that's maybe not the case. So every move I've made, I've been able to make it from a position of strength, meaning I'm in a good place and I'm, I'm in a, personally, I'm in a happy place. So for me to make the actual transition, I felt there was some kind of opportunity that would just elevate my career or satisfy my thirst for continuously learning or new challenges. So I wasn't looking to move to uh, call it the management side or the corporate side of things at the time uh, when I was in investment banking. I surrounded myself with a great team. I've always, I would say, if there's one kind of thing that really helped me get to where I am, not really myself. It wasn't, the, wasn't working all those hours. It was my ability to surround myself with a great group of people that really elevated my game, which really allowed me to kind of move on to those next major chapters. And to your point, Adam, that next major chapter was leaving Dundee's investment banking and moving over to internet. And like I said, I wasn't really looking to it other than the fact that I knew I was getting to a point in my career over 25 years of looking at real estate through the financial lens and through the lens of a 30-story foot building downtown Toronto, which is great. And it's, it served me well, but I didn't have any hands-on actual real estate experience. And I'm the kind of guy that really wants to be well-balanced in everything I do in life. And I realized I was slowly pigeonholing myself if I was to stay in investment banking that really, I was really going to pigeonhole myself to kind of just a financial type real estate executive. And I kind of wanted more, but without really knowing that. And within talks with different people, there's a couple couple of management groups I have a, a lot of respect for. And I always thought, if the opportunity came up, maybe I would consider it. And one of those was, was in rent, was uh, CEO Mike McGann and, and the team he put around him, our CFO, Kurt Miller, and our chief operating officer, Dave Nevins. Nice amount of respect for these gentlemen. And they're very like-minded as far as their values. And that's really important to me. But more than anything, this was a group of people I knew I could learn from and really put an emphasis on people and working hard. But and here's the big one, playing hard. And it really mattered. So the culture, I was always drawn to the culture at internet that was there. They always seemed like they were having a lot of fun. That's important. That was really important to me because you do put in the long hours and life's too short. So if you can't go to work and have fun, 
then really it's going to be dragged out and you're not going to be in a good place and it's going to be very hard to kind of lead and kind of move forward and, and make progress. So really for me, it was about surrounding myself with like-minded people that I thought could help transition myself into more well-rounded real estate executive. You know, we are gonna we're gonna get to leadership challenges during COVID uh, later in the podcast, Brad. But I, I want to keep looking backwards a little bit. I mean, you spent that time evaluating REITs, and we just released the last podcast. Let me let date stamp it. Today is October fifth, and the previous podcast for those listeners was a gentleman named Mark Rothschild, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who is an analyst of REITs. And one of the things that he talked about was the sort of difficult to measure management value when you're evaluating REITs. So as you were sitting in his desk, looking at REITs, were there management styles? I mean, I'd love if you could list some of the individuals or the companies they were that, but if you don't want to do that, at least list the management criteria or the style of management that you felt was the best suited for increasing the value of the REIT. Yeah. And it, and I first off, I've got a lot of respect for Mark Rothschild. He's a really bright guy and, and really understands the space and has been at it for a while and, and he's definitely somebody I appreciate reading his views, that's for sure. And I think he's bang on. I think the intangibles of what kind of valuation do you attribute to management? Ask me back when I was an analyst, I would have probably said at the time I would have put thirty to forty percent of the valuation of management. And this sounds self serving or if that I'm talking about my own book, but I would I'd have to say that's even greater now that I'm in the seat on the other side. Leadership styles that I've always really appreciated. And I'll, I'll name a couple. This is not exhausted. And I uh, definitely uh, apologize to anybody that I'm leaving out. It's not, these are more just specific examples. And I think there's a, a lot of my uh, peers and colleagues within the real estate operating company world and REITs do a wonderful job of this. But I've envisioned. I think people like Michael Emery at Allied had this wonderful vision, knew he was sitting on uh, probably some of the best real estate in the country, has such an opportunity. Right now, brick and bean, who knows what some of that real estate will look like in 10, 15, 20, 30, 70 years. I know some of it's going to be condos like the Well Project and whatnot, but I think at the end of the day, he had a vision of urbanization and he went after it. And he's really created something special and created a pretty amazing company. Then you have guys like Michael Cooper that can just really take a look at a macro level and, and really try to think outside the box and stay really innovative. And I really like that because I think real estate gets kind of used as an analogy, like brick and mortar and it's old school, but I think there's such an opportunity to look at best practices within the other industries and take from that and how can we apply it within our own discipline and really kind of take it to the next level. I, I think people like Michael Cooper really do that well and kind of recognize the arbitrage that are out there in different uh, geographic markets, what they did with no longer now, but Dundee International use cost of ca- low cost of capital here to expand somewhere else. So Kind of, again, kind of thinking outside the box. Then there's the management style that here at my own uh, company, and I'm going to pay uh, Mike McGann, our CEO, a lot of uh, credit to. And that's a doer. That's when you set your sight on something, being able to get something done, pick up the ball and get it across the goal line. A lot of times people can kind of get down to use a sports analogy. You can get down to the red zone 
but they fall short of putting the ball and punching it into the end zone. And you need a style that's relentless, that you're going to continue to be laser-focused and do it and get it across. And, and I think with the kind of a combination of those three things, it really could set itself up well as a management group. With the first being a visionary, being like long-term and having the sights on the long-term, with the later being we've got to get things done today in order to kind of progress, right? And then with that middle example being uh, something like a Michael Cooper that has a capability of kind of constantly wanting what's next and being innovative. I, I think if you can mold those three uh, styles together, I, I think you're, you're in a pretty good position. I hope that I answered. No, sure. yeah, no, no, absolutely. No, I, I just I find it very fascinating. I mean, the valuation of REITs, and we're going to keep going on REITs, is just such an interesting concept. Before we do that, I just want to jump in. At least uh, you mentioned the, the sports analogy of taking the ball to the red zone and punching it through. I noticed you've got some cowboy paraphernalia behind you. Our, our listeners can't see it, but I wanted to just say at least you're not playing the inter-rent REIT like the cowboys are playing these days. Um, <laughs> well, well you, know, you know what? It's kind of funny because... I would say up to the last three or four years, we uh, Interrun was a very offensive-minded uh, story in the sense that housing affordability issues really uh, put extreme pressures on uh, rents and, and the top lines, and, and not just ourselves, like great companies such as Capri and Minto and whatnot, we're all experiencing the same kind of rental growth. So it's really about top line and the growth story. However, I think with the recent announcements and rent freeze, at least in Ontario, by the Ford government, I think things will be a little more defensive. And hopefully, Interrent does a lot better job than those Cowboys uh, playing defense, for sure. But I can assure you, we will not use the same playbook. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we get into current day discussions, I want to spend a little more time you know, uh, still looking backwards because you do have a very unique position. You've spent so much time focused on the REIT world, obviously starting off as an analyst and then more recently as president of InterREIT. And you're familiar with all these players before as an analyst and now as, uh, I guess, competitors, friendly competitors, however you view it. I won't ask you to comment, but given your long history of paying so much attention to this sector, can you comment on, on what it would have been like when you first started focusing on REITs, who was investing in them? And I know how this kind of shifted over time. Yeah, so it was early 2000s when I started covering the REIT space, like I said, with Sam Damiani. And he's, a, he's another great analyst like Mark, big brain. I encourage a lot of people to also read Sam's stuff as well. But I had the privilege of working for Sam and kind of first learning about the space. And please don't hold me to this, but I think at the time there might have been about seven REITs and market cap of the overall sector might have been maybe, maybe pushing 14 billion. I think our largest peer rate in the multifamily being cap REIT, I think might be at that now. So that kind of puts you crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. And there was all sorts of issues in and around our income trusts here to stay. Uh, limited liability issues, meaning can pension funds uh, invest in them? And they weren't included in the index. And we really were something of an anomaly. And it was very much at the time a retail type product for retail investors, really as an income substitute. And at that time, yields meant a lot and your distribution yield meant a lot. And really the level of valuation the most part really was concentrated in around payout ratios. If the re was over distributing or not, or was that a sustainable distribution? 
the U.S. has had REITs going back to the early 70s, but really since the, I call it the 90s, they've been quite prevalent. But within the U.S., I would say U.S. REITs always had a very loyal institutional following. And what that institutional following did was really help set best practices for REITs. And really what really drove unit prices in the U.S. was the fundamental, the underlying fundamentals of the company and the intrinsic values or also known as kind of NAV, net asset value. And people, investors in the U.S. really focused on net asset value growth. Where in Canada, we really focused on the distribution and the growth in the distribution where that payout was. So for the longest time, there's been a slow transition from a retail income focused audience or investor base to now what I would consider something a lot closer to the U.S., which is much more institutional type following, where investors today are actually looking for exposure to real estate as an agent of a diversification within an optimal asset allocation strategy. And if they can't get the exposure they want through direct real estate investing, they'll start to look at REITs as a way to get maybe some of that exposure. And then obviously one of the big ones too is index occlusion, which was, uh, I believe was back in 2005 as well. And that was big because there's so many ETFs today that follow different indexes. And I would say, I think it was two years ago that it was really ETFs, real estate got its own uh, categorization within uh, the indexes, which is really important because now you had all this passive money that had to invest in REITs because they were being benchmarked to the index. So capital flows have played a big part in Canada and it's helped transition us from a retail focus to a much more uh, institutional focus, which really means taking a more total return approach in your approach as far as your investment strategies and whatnot, which we'll probably talk about in a bit. But we've, uh, lack of a better term, we put on a big boy pants and we've grown up in Canada. And I would say there's a much bigger emphasis on NAV per unit growth and uh, balance sheets and conservative balance sheets. Thanks for that, Mark. It was really kind of fascinating as you described the growth and the just the change in the way that you know Canadians invest in REITs. Last one on REITs, and then we'll move on to interim management and you know strategies and things like that. One of the things that Mark had indicated when we were interviewing him is that uh, future development and the way that REITs are growing by intensifying their own land is not at all considered in the valuations. And, and we found that very surprising because Adam and I, I mean, really aside from you and, and the interview with Mark last week, really have been talking to everybody else in the industry and the horizons of you know, ROI are 5, 10, 15, 50, 70 years. And yet the REIT analysis looks at point in time. That's it. It's cash flow that day and nothing to do with future. Can you explain that? Do you have comments? I mean, it's curious. You were on the one side of it. Now you're on the other. Like you must kind of look at your, I'm sure you look at your portfolio and all the future growth that's coming and think that your your stock is undervalued. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't think it was undervalued and that's my job. But there's a, there's a couple of different ways uh, to look at it. I'm not talking about my own book or my own personal net wealth that's tied up in internet. Really, he's bang on as far as the bang on in the sense that some of it is our own fault by design that there's not a value ascribed to the intensification opportunities within internet. We are big believers in establishing a track record and kind of putting doing it first, and the market can evaluate how they see fit. Meaning, we much rather develop out and intensify some of these opportunities 
and then show you the value as opposed to say, hey, we have X amount of potential of intensification opportunities on our buildings and try to walk you back and what that might be worth. Because development, there's just so many different variables that you can't control. So that until it's completed and leased up, it's hearsay. And I think we rather much take the approach, let the smarter guys in the room like Mark Rothschild figure it out and estimate what they believe it is and talk with their clients as to maybe what that value is. But said different, the reason why I can say with a lot of confidence that the market is not valuing any of our intensification opportunities, just even on our existing portfolio, the cash in place, we're trading on an applied cap rate where we would never be able to replace today if we had to buy it in the private market. So there's definitely a dislocation between the public market and the private market right now, irregardless of any of those other opportunities that you're talking about, Aaron. And we do have a lot of those opportunities. And we're really, really excited about those opportunities because those are the kind of opportunities, if done right, can really create NAV value potential. And and that's a lever that we get to pull. And that is a really important lever. Now, in order to pull that lever, you must make sure on the other side, and both you gentlemen will appreciate this, being where you're employed, is you must have be really well capitalized. And the trick, in my opinion, to managing is you've got to be a really good steward of capital allocation and lining up your cost of capital with the different opportunities. However, timing doesn't always lend itself well to that. Where it gets tricky is because of timing, right? So... We have probably one of the most conservative balance sheet within our sector right now. And a lot of that is to do with you don't know exactly the timing or how some of this development will play out. So we rather leave ourselves flexibility so that we can have different opportunities present themselves, maybe intensification, maybe greenfield development, maybe an office conversion that we're doing in downtown Ottawa, maybe our business model, the value add, which is essentially the majority of where our growth comes from, we want to be able to have the balance sheet that allows us the flexibility to pull those levers at a different time. On the intensification, will we be doing some? Absolutely. We will continue to entitle, and and there's quite a process involved with that. And we won't break ground on uh, intensification until we believe that we can reach our performance rents and it makes sense that whatever we're going to be delivering those units into, we can accept and have a good comfort where we think those rents will be. But I, I, I 100% agree with Mark. That's just gravy or, or, or the cherry on top is those intensification opportunities because they will add right to the bottom line on the, on the NAV for sure. So that, that, on that same thought, and I'll use one of your more prominent projects as an example being the live building in ottawa it was a very large turnaround project for you but if you were buying an asset like that at the time it was not performing optimally does it create a very small drag on nav given that you're not valuing any of the repositioning value in the asset that it will be within a two-year time frame you know you could double the noi or whatever the goal is on that particular asset does the market also ignore that aspect as well of potential future income streams? Yeah, it's a great question, Adam. And it's funny, it's one of the biggest challenges being on the corporate side is really trying to 
we're getting judged daily, right, by the stock market. We put our, our scorecard quarterly, and then the, the investment community through the analyst kind of re- reports on it. But we're investing over the longer term, and we're investing with the horizon that's 10, 15, 30, 40 years out. And the challenges present themselves, there are different motivations between those stakeholders that I just mentioned. Something with Liv is a really, uh, it's a great example. It's an interesting story because when this management group originally got involved with the REIT back in 2009, we had another opportunity that we were facing and we had to choose between the two. The group ended up deciding to inject a, a private placement, and for lack of a better term, to kind of a reverse takeover and decided to invest in Inrent. And I think I think that was the right decision, right? I think, I, my understanding, I think it was uh, one of the top 10 companies that listed on the TSX over the last 10-year period, not just REIT overall. So I think, and I can't take any credit for it. I wasn't with the company. So I think they made the right decision. Well, the second opportunity was Lyft. And they were originally looking, do they invest in the internet or do they invest in Lyft? Always believed in Liv is for those that don't know it, it's uh, right kind of outside of Little Italy, right in uh, Ottawa, right off the 417. So it's extremely well located. But it was a building that had a lot of challenges, had a lot of hair on it. It was about 40% vacant when purchased, and it had, uh, had some questionable uh, tenants. And there was a lot of work that needed to be done, and it was actually bringing down the area where it's situated. So there's going to be some major capital injections needed. And there's even questionable, will you be able to really earn a return? Given the notorious of the building being known, would you be able to really reposition it? So it was really facing at the core of what we do, which is repositioning and the value add. But we believed in the location so much so that we're like, no, we can do this. And the management group got together and did it. But in the process, as we closed on the transaction, we realized it was an opportunity for this building to actually we can empty it and get it down to zero vacancy uh, to 100% vacant and really do a significant reposition. And we did. It took real dollars. And to your point, Adam, those real dollars without earning some kind of yield in the process does really impact um, not only NAB, but it will also impact your cash flow in the near term. So you have to have real faith and commitment that you did have a vision and that you were onto something. By the end, and I won't really go into numbers, it was uh, it was a big project. We took three buildings, we merged them together. There were three separate buildings. We merged them together. It's probably got, I'm biased, but I would say it's probably the nicest rooftop in Ottawa. Maybe one of the nicest rooftops I've been anywhere in Canada. It's got a huge floor plate. It's got a wonderful amenity programming. And it's really, we've had people from south of the border come up and look at it as a case study as far as the repositioning. It really highlighted what our team, I believe, does really well, and that is the repositioning. And it does take a full team. And the team that repositioned this, we had to draw upon expertise all across their company to get it done. And at the end of the day, I couldn't uh, be prouder to be a part of it. There was a lot of questions. Would we achieve the rents that we achieved? Did we overreach? And I think everybody would agree that we didn't. 
And I think it's one of the nicest apartment buildings, not only in our portfolio, but I would say in, in Ontario. And I would put it up against anything that's new. And that's, that's hard because we took an existing structure, three structures, took them back to the stud and had to reposition and work with an existing floor plate. But at the end of the day, it opened up a lot of other doors and it gave us knowledge and experience to allow us to look at some other assets differently and the confidence to be able to go out and execute. And I, I also think it gave us the ability to partner and have discussions with people like Brookfield because they got comfortable in seeing uh, what we could do. And, and I think Liv played a, a big part of that. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, when you're driving in into Ottawa, you can see it. It does stand out. It's even from, you know, Wickmine, the highway is evident that that was not just lipstick on a pig. Some serious work went into that building to get it uh, get it where it is today. So I guess we spent a lot of time kind of looking backwards at what you've done in the remarket and what Interest done. But maybe it'd be worth talking about what you've got planned for the next, call it two to three years as we wind through this COVID experience. Would you be taking on new projects like that now? Would you want to be intensifying now? What do you see for, you know, call it near term, the two to three years coming up in front of us? Yeah, at the risk of sounding boring, we're, I think we're going to continue to do a lot of what we have been doing over the last kind of three to four years. We've been kind of consolidating and refocusing the portfolio in the much concentrated areas in which we do operate. Currently, over 80% of our NOI is in Ottawa, the GHTA, and Montreal. I'm pretty sure we're, we have been the biggest buyer in Montreal, call it in the last uh, three years. We really believe in that market, and I think we've been doing something really special there. Obviously, Ottawa is our backyard. We're head office in Ottawa, and we've been operating in Ottawa for over 30 years, uh, the previous management group. So it's a market that we know extremely well. We have one uh, development site right down uh, 900 Albert, which is called already approved zoning, 1.7 million square feet. Huge project, but obviously that's kind of a project that you'd probably, you will continue to get the design and the entitlements, but you probably wouldn't go ahead with that until you had a little more certainty where this pandemic takes us and when does immigration clearly come back. But then we have a project of 473 Albert on the other side, really close to the LRT, that's an office conversion. And I think we feel comfortable enough to continue to proceed with that conversion and go ahead and spend some money on that. We have a wonderful joint venture uh, with uh, Brookfield, their first multifamily investment in Canada. That's out in Burlington with us, and and that's a multi-phase project. So we'll continue to work on that and uh, get it in title and get the designs and whatnot. And when it's go time, we'll make a decision. So really for us, I think in the near term, call it next two years, it's really going to be probably on the value add. It's going to be through acquisitions and it's going to be location, location, location. We'll, we'll never sacrifice location, but we'll look at different properties that have some kind of value add proposition. It might be under lease. It might be a new property that's under lease. It might be a structure that needs a lot of physical work. It might be a combination of the above. But we still very much like locations which are close to existing infrastructure or proposed infrastructure. And things such as schools and hospitals, they're great for apartment buildings. And we'll go in and, and we'll take our experience and our expertise and 
we'll go in and reposition these buildings. I think there's a wonderful opportunity, not just for ourselves, but for our peer group as well, that the majority of apartments are still owned by mom and pops and limited partnerships and whatnot. And COVID has proven to be challenging operating environment. And this is a people business. And it's all about your operating platform. So there's a big portion of the ownership group that really don't have their own internal operating platform. They either are managed by a third party or they're doing themselves and they don't have the same kind of access to capital or the same kind of cost of capital to allow them to reinvest in their platforms with technology and continuing to enhance the overall uh, skill levels within their company which puts the likes of us and our peers at a really advantage. And I think that pretty sure First National sees this is there's not a shortage of bidders for this asset class. What I do think is going to happen is you're going to see an increased amount of deal flow and it's going to come from the private and it's going to get institutionalized. And internet's going to play a big role in that. And as we go forward, we're just going to have to be very mindful that right now capital is scarce. We right now are as a view from the public market trading at a discount to our intrinsic value. So you got to really think twice when you put a dollar out because you want to make sure that that dollar is going to earn you the kind of return that you need going forward. And you don't know when the public market is going to fairly reflect what is happening on the private side. But the good news is I truly do believe that there's going to be a lot of, there's going to be an increased amount of deal flow. And it's going to come because the changes in CMAC policy without uh, kind of restricting the private guy from taking uh, up financing and taking that equity out. I think it's also because of the challenges that you're going to see from an operational standpoint. But lastly, anytime this government runs deficits, the capital gains tax always comes into question. I think there's going to be a lot of vendors that might want to get out in front of any potential tax changes because they're sitting on such a low tax base. So I, so I think there's going to be a great opportunity. It's just we're going to have to be really careful on how we allocate our capital and be really good stewards of capital. You know, Brad, I date stamped this October 5th. You know, we're in the middle of, in Ontario, I think Canada, we're in the middle of a second wave. And there's been the dialogue within the apartment spaces that slowly but surely, there seems to be a softening of the market. You know, rents aren't, units aren't absorbing as quickly. Rents are kind of flat. The luxury market seems to be taking a hit. How are you guys, you know, Interrent, the Royal U, so internalizing what's going on in the marketplace and, and what do the discussions sound like? Yeah, the fundamentals, we were in such a wonderful spot being in the apartment business in the sense the fundamentals were so tight, but really they were tight for lack of supply. And really that had led to real rent pressures. And what I mean by that is this is one sector that really hadn't seen supply come on at the rate it should relative to rental demand. And that's really just as a result of kind of uh, rent uh, regulation and controls. So really, at least in Ontario and Quebec to a lesser degree, you haven't seen significant increase of supply until I say the last 10 years. So most of the stock was built, call it, back in the 50s and the 60s. And while this country has continued to grow and grown at a pretty significant pace, I think it's been uh, one of the 
if not the highest, at least the second highest of the G20 countries as far as population growth. And we've seen that population growth come through and be driven by immigration. But our housing supply hasn't kept up. And the rental supply has definitely not kept up. And what has created is this housing affordability issue, but uh, specifically in Vancouver and the GTA, but even cities like Ottawa and Montreal will also be kind of following this trend of a deteriorating housing affordability. And really what that has led to is significant pressure on rental rates. And what's caused that is more demand than we have supply. And it really is a supply issue. So pre-COVID, we were experiencing strong immigration patterns and each year setting new records. COVID happens and all of a sudden immigration slows, trickles right down to a fraction of what it was previously. And that has caused some softness right now in the, in the current market. As, as you see, less international foreign students, I think this country gets roughly 500,000 a year. They're not counting the immigration stats, but in urban areas like Montreal, they play a big role in the rental demand pool, and they are absent. And then you see young professionals who have been in their current employment with employers for maybe one, two, three years, and they're getting nervous. So they're, they're moving out, and they're moving back home to save some money because they're not sure as far as job security. So household formation has kind of decrease uh, during this time of COVID. But I don't think it's a question of if immigration returns. It's more of a question of when. And Canada was a pretty attractive place to immigrate to pre-COVID. I think with some of the things and political risks that you see around the world today and, and some of the events happening south of the border, if Canada was a pretty good and attractive place to immigrate to before COVID, I think it's just if not arguably even more attractive post-COVID. So really, when you look at the housing affordability issues that we were experiencing, I don't see that gone and going away. And if anything, you're seeing less proposed new supply to be built in this time, and it's created further uncertainty. So I do think when immigration does return to Canada and, and essentially to Ontario and Quebec, you're going to see a big pent-up demand, and you're actually going to see the fundamentals even tighten further, in our opinion. Yeah, Brad, I mean, I couldn't agree more. The big selling feature of apartments, of course, is they, they do well in downtimes, and, and they're proving that now. And as the economy recovers, they'll likely lead the charge into a you know, stronger economy than we have now. Well, we are at a time with, with Brad. The after show is next, but at this point, we do need to say goodbye. Brad, I want to thank you so much for sharing your, your expertise, your history, your view of this sector. It's been a very interesting conversation. Great. Thanks for having me, Aaron and Adam. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Really appreciate it. Take care, guys. I want to, say, I want to thank Informa for setting up the, the interview with Brad. It was much appreciated. And, of course, the First National for powering the podcast. Now, here's the after show. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, uh, where we're going to digest that really interesting conversation we just had with Brad. First and foremost, poor guy with a Cowboys fan. I mean, we recorded before this recent Sunday, 
but we're doing the after show a couple of days later and he's recently lost his star quarterback to a gruesome injury. Adam, I'm sure you were all over that. Um, <laughs> I have nothing but, intelligent to say about uh, football, unfortunately. <laughs> Brad, Brad, as you're listening to this, I'm sorry for your loss, man. I hope he's better. I hope uh, Dak comes back stronger than ever. <laughs> you know, our guests can't see it, but he had like a whole bunch of Cowboys paraphernalia behind him on his screen. So I, clearly a pretty big fan. What an interesting path he took to get to the head of a large apartment REIT. I wonder if it's intimidating or easier for the analyst knowing what his background is that he sat in their chair at the time. Because you do get into some dialogue at times with the analysts. You know, he knows the game, I guess. So maybe it makes it harder for analysts to divulge information. Like I, I'd be really interested just to hear next time we have Mark Rothschild on, we might have to ask him that question. Yeah, I mean, it is also just as well, the reinforces the concept that if you are very senior in real estate now, odds are your path from the get-go was not on a real estate track. The way that many people entering the industry are now, where you can go get a degree in real estate and then start as a junior analyst somewhere and off you go. When you talk to anybody who's been in the business for long enough to get to a position where, where he is, it's always, the story's always, well, I started in fill in the blank. In this case, it was oil and gas, but it could be virtually anything else other than real estate. And then sometime before the age of 30 or slightly after they figured out or fell backwards into or got incentivized to move over to real estate, something that altered their path in a major way. But there's not a lot of people who are finishing their first year university and start thinking about when they graduate, what are they going to do that are on a commercial real estate track. So it does reinforce that. It's kind of funny. The other big reinforcement we got, we've talked about it now on uh, two separate podcasts. And of surprising news to us is the stock market does not value intensification value of sites, a pipeline of development, or repositioning value. None of that, which is amazing because you know we as stop lenders... Stop telling people. Adam, stop telling people that. <laughs> that just be a secret. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, but you know, Brad was interesting. I guess, I mean, again, he's got perspective of being on both sides. I mean, he, he, he kind of almost unapologetically said, yeah, but I mean, you got to remember the, the analysts looking at the value of those REITs, they're looking at in-place cash flow today. Like that's it. That's, that is the only lens they can look at it because you, you're basing it off the NAV, which is, which is cash flow dependent. So you can't build in cash flow growth because that's uncertain and you never know how long it's going to take. And you never know what that rent's going to look like in the future. And so you just, you literally have to ignore it. And he didn't, he didn't seem to be bothered by it. I mean, clearly he's been aware of that phenomenon for forever. You and I are literally learning about it in the last sort of two weeks. But yeah, I mean, from a real estate perspective, like if I take a step back a little bit, it just seems bizarre or it seems like there's an opportunity there. Again, I keep saying this, this is not an investment recommendation or investment advice, but go buy REIT, right? Go buy some REIT stock, (laughs) but good ones, go buy good ones, whatever that may be, however you define that. Please listen to the end of this podcast because there's a disclaimer right at the very end. It's not best advice, but we would encourage people to listen to both episodes carefully and make their own decisions. There you yeah. go. Thanks. Yes. Whatever Adam said, don't listen to me. I don't know what I'm talking about. The other aspect I really like about this conversation was you know, the, the big turnaround projects. You know, we had a similar conversation not too long ago with uh, Kevin Green from Greenwind because they do a lot of big turnarounds. But the one that they undertook in Ottawa was massive and successful. Well, obviously, we don't, we don't have you know access to the numbers, but I know they're they're profitable. If you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get to work, I know that they can be very very profitable doing these these big turnaround projects. But it, it takes a, a bit of a bit of chutzpah, you know. You're stepping into a, a building that somebody else couldn't make work, and you're you're basically saying, "I can do what you can't," and I'm going to buy it for that reason. Did I hear he turned two buildings into one building? Is that what he said? 
There's two uh, towers, and now it turns into one tower? Like, uh, yeah, that doesn't sound easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that can't be easy. <laughs> yeah, because he was talking about how dealing with the footprints that exist. And, oh, wow. Yeah, no, it is, it is quite amazing that they, you know, and, and that was not necessarily their forte, right? Like that, they were not known as a, as a company that, that undertook those types of opportunities. But then with this new leadership group that, as, that, that he's a part of, that's something that they wanted to create a name for themselves and good on them. I think like and he mentioned it, it created a reputation. It really was well-received and it, and it established them as a, as a company as a player in, in the you know apartment space that can do things like that, which is, as you indicated, like what the Greenwoods have done with Chuck Farm in sort of North Toronto, it is a great way to build value. It also feeds into their longer-term goal that uh, you know, started a while ago to transition away from some of the smaller markets, some of the 401 corridor stuff into major markets. I mean, given how competitive is now, just showing up at the table and trying to buy a couple hundred units is going to be expensive. You're going to have a pretty low cap rate and have to work pretty diligently to try and improve it over time. But if you take on a repositioning project, you can get a couple of hundred units at a discount and then see the value grow through your work rather than just clipping a coupon, taking your little your margin at the edge and hoping for rental growth over time. You know, that's a tough way to try and really grow your nav and grow your book over time. I mean, you know, people do it, but it's not a super effective use of capital. Well, I think that was it. I really enjoyed that episode uh, with Brad. I mean, we've had a lot of people on in a similar position to him, but I like I really like the the two sided coin of you know the the previous role uh, as an analyst, and then of course you know he changed sides and got into it from the other side of the business. So very cool conversation, and I look forward to the next one. Quick reminder to register for the 2020 Real Estate Forum, which takes place on the second and third of December, by going to realestateforums.com. Real Estate Forum Club members, remember to enter your membership number to receive your 20% discount. Adam and I really look forward to connecting with you and many others this year at the Forum. Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.